2: Hey there, history fans. Please enjoy these flashback shows from the TDI-HC vault, and be sure to meet me back here tomorrow for a brand new episode.
0: Hey, I'm Eve, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a podcast where we bring you a slice of history every day. The day was February 22, 1876. Native American activist and writer Zitkala Shah, also known as Gertrude Simmons Bonin, was born on the Yankton Reservation in South Dakota. Zitkala Shah's mother, named Reaches for the Wind, was a Yankton Sioux. Her father was a white man named Felker. But Felker abandoned the family early on, and Zitkala Shah's mother eventually married another man named John Hastings Simmons. Zitkala Shah gave herself her name, which means Red Bird in the Lakota language. Zitkala Shah spent her early childhood on the reservation. There, she listened to traditional stories with characters that she would later include in her first book. But when she was around eight years old, she left the reservation to go to a Quaker missionary school in Indiana. Zitkala Shah's mother did not support her attending this school because she did not trust the missionaries to educate Native American children. Zitkala Shah returned to South Dakota after three years of study. But four years later, she left the reservation again to go back to school. One of the schools she went to in the following years was Earlham College in Indiana, While there, she got second place in a statewide oratory contest, which resulted in her first publication. She also studied music and played the violin. This led her to study at the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston and teach at the Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. She did not really care for the time she spent at Carlisle, and she disagreed with the school's founder, Richard Henry Pratt, who supported teaching Native American students agrarian and domestic skills rather than academic subjects. Around this time, Zitkala Shah began publishing her work in magazines like Harper's and Atlantic Monthly. In 1901, the publisher Jinn and Company released her first full-length book, Old Indian Legends. That year, when she visited her mother, she met another Yankton Sioux named Raymond Bonin, They got married, had a child, and moved to a reservation in Utah. Zitkala Shah worked as a clerk and teacher. Her musical and writing careers took a backseat to the rest of her work, though she did collaborate with composer William Hansen on an opera called Sundance that premiered in Utah in 1913. At this point, Zitkala Shah was turning more toward activism. She became involved with the Society of American Indians, or SAI, a reform organization formed at Ohio State University in 1911. The group was run by Native Americans, and it aimed to preserve their way of life while advocating full American citizenship— It focused on government reforms as well as activities like increasing Native American employment in the American Indian Service, which was the agency that managed Native American affairs. Zitkala Shah wrote a poem that was published in the Society's Quarterly magazine, and in 1916, she was elected secretary of the organization, a position she held until 1919. Zitkala Shah and her family moved to Washington, D.C., There, she became involved with many other organizations concerned with Native American rights and reforms. She served as editor of SAI's publication, American Indian Magazine, writing essays about issues such as land retention and self-determination. She lobbied lawmakers and toured across the U.S. in support of Native American citizenship. She spoke out on the conditions of poverty on reservations, detailing how food was scarce, and opportunities for education and employment were few. But because she had one foot in white society and the other in Native American communities, she did garner the distrust of some Native Americans. After the SAI disbanded and the Indian Citizenship Act passed, zitkala Shah and her husband founded the National Council of American Indians. Its goal was to make a, quote, constructive effort to better the red race and make its members better citizens of the United States. It promoted Pan-Indianism, as opposed to tribalism. Though the organization floundered, Zitkala Shah continued to lecture on Native American reforms and rights. She died in 1938. Her writing is noted for describing the tension between her Native American roots and her white education— Her advocacy has been criticized by some people who note the impact of assimilation on cultural identity, but she is considered an influential activist in Native American history, as she advocated for Native American civil rights, women's rights, education, and the preservation of Native American culture. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. I hope you liked this show. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode.
2: and welcome to This Day in History Class, a show that marks the milestones of history one day at a time. I'm Gabe Lusier, and today we're looking at how one New Englander's weird political bet transformed the mundane act of walking into America's new favorite pastime. The day was February 22nd, 1861. After losing a bet, Edward Payson Weston embarked on a 478 mile walk from Boston to Washington, D.C. According to the terms of the bet, he had to arrive at the U.S. Capitol in time to attend Abraham Lincoln's inauguration on the morning of March 4th. That means he had just 10 days to cover nearly 500 miles on foot in the dead of winter. Weston was born in Providence, Rhode Island, on March 15, 1839. He grew up in a middle-class family and went to school in Boston. Later, he bounced from one career to the next, first apprenticing with a jeweler in Providence and then taking a job at a newspaper in New York. At one point, he even ran away and joined the circus. By his early 20s, Weston still didn't have a clear career path, but his talent for self-promotion always kept him comfortable, and in the years ahead, it would provide him with much more than that. Weston's unusual athletic career began with a bad bet during the presidential election of 1860. He had bet against Lincoln winning the White House, and his friend, George Eddy, had bet in Lincoln's favor. The loser would have to walk nearly 500 miles from the Massachusetts State House to the Capitol for Lincoln’s inauguration. And just to make it extra difficult, they would have just 10 days to do it. That November, Weston lost his bet when Lincoln won the election, claiming 39.8% of the popular vote in a four-way race. On New Year’s Day, 1861, Weston decided it was time to start practicing. He walked from New Haven, Connecticut to Harford, Connecticut, and back again in less than 24 hours, a round trip distance of about 72 miles. A man taking a long walk might not seem like national news, but the New York Times felt differently. The paper reported about Weston's big upcoming walk, and for the next two months, his name was seldom absent from the country's headlines. Weston used this publicity to attract several sponsors to foot the bill for his journey. After all, he would need plenty of money for food and lodging along the way, as well as for a horse-drawn carriage to carry spare clothing and supplies. Two men would also need to be hired to follow along in the carriage and make sure Weston actually walked the entire way. In addition to money and basic supplies, one sponsor, the Rubber Clothing Company, also gave Weston a special rubber suit to help keep him dry in the winter weather. It's unclear how Weston would have accomplished his trip without the aid of sponsors, but I think the truth is he never intended to find out. Before leaving Boston, he printed up stacks of advertising flyers, which he would then leave at various stops along his route to help entice new sponsors. This was crucial because Weston didn't have much money of his own. In fact, his departure on February 22nd was slightly delayed because a constable arrested him at the state house for unpaid debts. He quickly talked his way out of custody, pledging to repay the debt once he returned from Washington. With that out of the way, Weston set out from Boston in the early afternoon, followed closely behind by his attendants in the carriage. A crowd of supporters cheered him on his way, and that evening in the town of Framingham, he was greeted by a drum corps and treated to a fancy dinner. That kind of pampering proved to be the norm for much of Weston's trip. Thanks to a route schedule he had printed in advance, crowds of well-wishers met him at every stop along the way. This kind of enthusiasm resulted in most places not charging Weston for food or lodging, Unbeknownst to his sponsors. However, charity wasn't the only repeat occurrence on Weston's trip. He also got arrested again, too. When he reached Worcester at midnight on his first day, a sheriff was waiting to arrest him, this time for a different unpaid debt. His pledge to repay the debt in two months wasn't going over as well in Worcester, but when two fans volunteered to guarantee his promise, The sheriff agreed, and set Weston loose again. That was his last brush with the law on the long road to Washington, but the rest of the trip was still no picnic. It rained or snowed for more hours than not, and in one town, he was chased by a dog and wound up spraining his ankle. Later, in Pennsylvania, he got turned around and wound up taking the wrong road for several hours. Then there was the day when Weston reported a severe pain in his chest, something he later attributed to, quote, the eating of mustard on sandwiches. Thankfully, he pulled through. In the end, Edward Payson Weston arrived in Washington, D.C. at 5 p.m. on March 4, 1860. He had been on the road for 10 days, 4 hours, and 12 minutes. Unfortunately, that put him into town several hours too late to witness Lincoln's inauguration. Still, since he had come all that way, Weston decided to make the most of it. He attended the inauguration ball that evening, where he met members of Congress, First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln, and the President himself. Abraham Lincoln reportedly offered to pay for Weston's train ticket home, but he refused, saying that he intended to vindicate himself by walking back to Boston in less than 10 hours. Needless to say, that uh, didn't happen. Weston technically lost the bet due to his late arrival, but his successful promotion of the journey had left him with a new profession, a nice consolation prize. From then on, he would be known as Weston the Pedestrian, a professional walker who helped launch a national craze for long-distance walking, also known as pedestrianism. Seriously, it's hard to imagine today, but in the late 1800s, competitive walking became America's favorite spectator sport. There were two flavors of pedestrianism. The first was outdoor destination walking, like the kind that first made Weston famous. Once the sport had taken shape in the late 1860s, Weston won all kinds of cash prizes for walking from one place to another. And then he further capitalized on those trips by lecturing on the benefits of walking and by publishing melodramatic accounts of his adventures on the road. One of his early career highlights was walking the 1,200 plus miles from Portland, Maine to Chicago, Illinois in just 26 days. That hike made him a household name, and he quickly followed it up with other stunts, like the time in 1871 when he walked 200 miles around St. Louis, backwards. In the 1870s, pedestrianism hit peak popularity with the emergence of its second form, track walking. These events were usually held inside, at a skating rink or a big exhibition hall or arena. In walking matches, competitors would agree to walk around a track for a certain period of time, or to a certain distance, or just until the other walker got exhausted and could no longer continue. There were also record attempts, where a competitor would walk the track alone, racing the clock to beat a previous best time. Crowds for such events could number in the thousands for larger venues, like Madison Square Garden, for instance. But, alas, America's love affair with pedestrianism proved short-lived. By the 1890s, the rise of the bicycle and of baseball had stolen what little allure there was to watching two men walk in circles for hours on end. The final nail in the coffin came in the mid-1890s when charges of race-fixing and drug use gave the sport a black eye. When Weston himself was caught chewing coca leaves during a race for an extra boost of energy, public sentiment turned quickly, and pedestrianism never recovered. Still, even once his sport lost its luster, Weston kept right on walking. In fact, at age 68, he walked from Maine to Chicago again, and that time, he did it in 24 hours less than he had in his 20s. The old pro took his last big hike in 1913 when he was 74 years old. On that outing, he walked from New York to Minneapolis in 51 days, selling a 10 cent souvenir program all along the way. Unfortunately, Weston's walking career came to a sad, abrupt end in 1927 when he was struck by a taxicab in New York City. He never walked again and died two years later, at the age of 90. Throughout his life, Weston walked an odd path, going from an aimless young man to a reckless salesman to a beloved professional athlete. His sport of choice may seem silly and quaint by today's standards, but it entertained hundreds of thousands of people during its brief rise to fame. In the years following the Civil War, it also gave a still-fractured country something harmless to bond over. In that way, pedestrianism was just as legitimate a sport as any other, even if it was more boring than baseball. That's right, I said it. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. A big thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class.
1: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner.